Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to continue our journey through the first book in the Bible. So good news, it's not hard to find. Uh, You want to pull out a Bible that's in the seat uh, back in front of you, you can follow along, or you're welcome to uh, bring the one that hopefully you brought, or if you have to, you can turn on the idle phone or your Satan song, and uh, I'll assume you're looking at Scripture and not at the book of faith. Um, we're going to be in Genesis 2, and we're going to pick up in verse 8. I'm very thankful uh, last week that Jeff Marlowe shared with you all uh, from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. But as a little bit of a recap, what we see is in the first chapter of our Bibles, we find that God shares with us the creation story. And He does it at a 30,000 foot view. And so very much from up in the clouds, He shares how all the things that we experience came into existence. But as we arrive at chapter 2, what He does is He zooms down into a specific day, but more than that, into a specific relationship. And so God is now going to swoop down from more of just a couple thousand feet above the ground and zoom into the relationship between God and mankind. And so at the end of our time last week, we looked at verse 7, and the Lord God formed man out of the dust on the ground. In fact, the word Adam also has roots in the roots, in the soil itself. You could have called Adam back in the day uh, dusty. And so here you've got Dusty being born of the dust of the ground, of the dirt is how God formed man. And the same 17 essential elements that make up our body, in fact, make up the ground. And so here we are all together as a bunch of Dusties hanging out. And also what the Lord says through the pen of David in Psalm 103 verse 14 is this, For He, God, knows our frame, and He remembers that we are dust. And so here we are as humans being carried around with these dusty creations, and yet God knows that. God is not surprised by our frame. He knows what we're capable of and what we're not capable of. And I share that to start with this morning because often, I don't know about you, but I get these lofty expectations of me. I begin to to think at some point that I can do things that in reality God knew from the very get-go that I, I could not do and I'm not capable of. And so God knows our frame. He knows our limitations. He knows what we're capable of. And yet, because of His great love for us, He has given us these earthen vessels to carry around our soul and our spirit. But He knows that we are dust. In fact, uh, if you have the at NASB, the NASB translation of Psalm 103, it says that He remembers our frame and that we are uh, but dust. And so here you are gathered today as but dust. <laughs> there you go. You're going to be so happy if Jeff comes back to speak to you again. Uh, he, at least He didn't call us but dust. But here we are. We're, we're dust. We're, we're these earthen vessels, right? And yet so often in these vessels, we try to, we try to clean the vessel up, right? We, we work out the vessel, we paint up the vessel, we put nice things on the vessel. We want everyone to see how good the vessel looks. But what you know about an earthen vessel is there's nothing that's really of any great value of the vessel itself. What's valuable is inside the vessel. You put things of value, of worth in the vessel. In fact, what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, is, is this. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. That the actual power, the actual value, is it's of God. 
And in fact, in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2, what we continue to read is he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. It was only when the breath of life came into us that we became living beings. The, the ruach in the Hebrew, the pneuma in the Greek. This is where life actually begins. And so in these earthen vessels, the, the life actually starts with the spirit being breathed into us. So as we motor and operate around, we are all a bunch of, of zombies is the reality. We're, we're dead people. We are destined for uh, death. And yet when we accept the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit comes into us, this is when life actually begins. Life begins anew and afresh. This is the prize. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory, is what Paul says in Colossians 1. And so the value, though, that is in us can only actually be viewed by the world around us, and this is going to be really uplifting, um, when the vessel is broken. It's when the vessel breaks and cracks that the light can actually come forth that is in us. And, and that may not sound encouraging, and yet if you've been broken, you know what's the most encouraging? That someone else has been broken that comes alongside you. That, that they can actually pour out on you after they've been broken. The light can actually shine forth. The victory actually happens in the breaking. If you go back to Judges chapter 6-8, through eight, you've got the story there of Gideon. And as they surround the encampment of the evil Midianites, they don't have victory because of their great strength. The, the battle is 300 uh, Jewish men to 135,000 Midianites. There's not going to be any victory with those kind of odds. But where the victory happens is when the vessel is broken, the earthen vessels they had in their hands, and the light shines forth, and victory is proclaimed. There's a tremendous victory at the hands of the Lord through the breaking. And so all that leads us up to verse 8 of Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man who He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 10, now a river went out of the Eden to the water of the garden. And from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon, and it is the one that, out, that skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is very good. So there you go, find Havilah, you get lots of good gold. Uh, Bedellum and the onyx stone are there. Verse 13, and the name of the second is the Gihon, and it is the one that goes around the whole land of Cush. Verse 14, the name of the third is the Hedekel, and it is the one that goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And so we have this description of these four rivers, and yet as these rivers are described, please understand these are pre-flood conditions. And so the actual location of any of these lands or any of these rivers, we don't truly know because this was prior to Genesis 6 and 7, prior to the flood. Now we have a river, Euphrates, we know where that's at, but likely this river was named because Noah and his sons would have remembered the river Euphrates from previously and named it that. And so what we find and what the real takeaway is from this that I'd like you to have is here's God and he sets Adam up for success. He puts him in a garden. 
He, he has all the watering system worked out ahead of time where, where the dew actually waters the ground and keeps it tillable and, and plantable. And what God does is he places Adam in Eden, which is in Hebrew also called delightful. And I share that to say that here we have God putting man in a place where he can be successful. He does the same thing for you and I, by the way. He puts us in a position where we can have influence, where we can be in a spot of success, where he can actually give us good gifts. In fact, uh, James chapter 1, verse 17, uh, the writer James here says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, which comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God only gives good gifts. He's not waiting around the corner for us to slip up and, and mess up. He is looking to put us in a position to be successful, to have influence in the world that He has placed us in. Now we continue here in verse 15. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. This word tend is also the word work. And so what we find is work actually existed before sin ever came into the world. That God had given Adam a job to do. And I find that fascinating because often as a kid I thought about heaven and God's promise for us and I thought, what are we going to do all day? Like, am I just going to sit around and contemplate my navel? Like at some point I'm going to get bored with nothing to do in heaven. But what we find is here's a heavenly scene. Sin has not entered into the world. And what does God do? But He gives Adam a job. He gives him the job of tending the garden, of keeping after it. But it's important to note that there are no thorns, there are no thistles. He's already watering the ground. God is doing all the heavy lifting. He's allowing Adam to come alongside and work, not as a vocation, but as a recreation. That God has allowed him to work from a place of rest, not forced to rest from a place of work. And this is the same thing He desires for you and I. He doesn't call us to, to rest because we've worked so hard. He actually calls us to be able to work from a place of rest. As we see Jesus coming onto the scene and now the New Testament church, what do we do? We celebrate Jesus on Sunday, the first day of the week. What we find is uh, where the law said, if you do this, you'll live. What the Spirit says, if you live this, you'll do. And so as Jesus comes onto the scene, we can now, in this New Testament Christian life, actually work from a place of rest, from a promise that the work has already been done. And this is what God had intended for the children of Israel, by the way. If they just would have had enough faith to take Him up on it. He intended for them to be a set-apart people and to remove any fear that they might have if they just had faith. But fear is always the enemy of faith. Fear is always the enemy of rest. That fear is consumed with tomorrow. What about tomorrow? How will I provide tomorrow or next week or next month or next year? And yet what does God say? Uh, give us this day our daily bread. Not our weekly bread or monthly bread. It's Lord, I trust you in today that you're going to take care of today and I believe in you all the way into eternity. Faith believes that God is going to provide. And as we arrive in Hebrews chapter 4, this is a theme that the writer uh, to the Hebrews wants to pull out. Because what he says here in verse 1 of Hebrews 4 is, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. 
For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter the rest. As he said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. That God's promise was to take care of his children from the very foundation of the world. The issue for the nation of Israel is they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it completely that God was going to provide, that God was going to take care of it. And yet, even as they enter into the promised land, they cross the Jordan River, which, by the way, is always a picture of us entering into the abundant Christian life. What you know is when they got across the Jordan, there were battles to fight. There were giants. There was a land to conquer. And so God bringing them to that spot, what He didn't say is you're going to have no battles, no problems, no challenges. He didn't say that. He said, yes, you're going to have giants, but I'm going to defeat the giants. His promise was to go ahead of them. And so as they encircled their first battle they came across, the double-walled city of Jericho, what does God do but in the most unlikely way with a bunch of people, farmers, and you know, walking around the city with trumpets in their hand? This is the worst battle plan of all time. But God required them only to believe. And as they believed, the walls tumbled. But then they did what so often we do. Thank you, God, for the great victory. Now I'll take matters into my own hands. Now I've got it from here. And as they took matters into their own hands, uh, they got the floor mopped with themselves. They were no match for the giants, but God was. And so this is the difference between being uh, faithful and fearful. And what God calls us into is a relationship of faith where we believe that He is going to take care of us. Into a relationship of obedience, not obstinance. And so we have this opportunity to partner with God knowing that He's going to go before us. Now, we continue in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now this causes us to ask a big question. Why would God plant that tree? Of all the trees you could have planted, like why? Why plant a tree that's going to kill us? And the answer for that is, is one simple word. It's choice. God desires to have a loving relationship with us, with mankind. But love requires, love demands a choice. They had to be able to choose. So here's God setting them up in the most perfect of scenarios. And yet He had to layer in. He had to give them a choice. If he forced love upon them, it's not love at all. In fact, we've got another word for that. Uh, forced love, it gets you 10 to 20. right? So God doesn't want that kind of love. He wants them to choose him. He wants us to choose to be in a relationship with him. And so he gives them a choice, but he also gives them a really scary warning with it. On the day that you choose this, you're going to die. He didn't hint around at it. He didn't, you know, suppose they might get it. He didn't give them innuendo. He said, no, this is what it's going to be if you choose that. God, by His grace, actually gave them this scary, literally scare the hell right out of you kind of a warning. That's what God wants them to see. And yet, please note with me, what He doesn't say is, if you eat this, I'm going to kill you. You see, that, that's the difference in our understanding of, 
um, God the Father and the Godfather, right? When we begin to view him as the Godfather, it becomes a, you've got to make him an offer they can't refuse, right? And that's so often how we view God, like he's made us this offer, we can't refuse it. And so we, we stumble and fall into this, but that's not what God said at all. God, being God the Father, loving, handles it like you would your kids. So, so the twins, they love swimming. They swim competitively. But you could imagine if they came to me and they said, uh, hey, Dad, we got this great idea. We're going to go swimming competitively in a pool full of hungry great white sharks. <laughs> I would say, wait a minute. Uh, boys, I know you love to swim, but on the day that you do that, you will surely die. I, I don't say, if you do that, I'm going to kill you. I say, look, Guys, on the day in which you do that, you're going to surely die. Like, there's, no, there's no hope for you. This is what God's communicating. God knew their frame. He understood what their composition was. Numbers chapter 32 verse 23 says this, Be sure your sin will find you out. Sin is the problem. Sin is what the Lord wants to keep us from. Not because it's sin, but because it's bad for us. Because it's harmful for us. And so this is the warning from God the Father. But their desire was to, to know sin. And we'll get into this more next week, but please understand their desire to have knowledge of sin. The same word know is when we see the relationship between Adam and Eve, that Adam knew Eve and she conceived a child. It's to intimately experience and know sin for themselves. And there's where the danger comes into play. And so we have this warning given to Adam. Now, continuing here in verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. This is the first time that God says something wasn't good. All right? Everything else has been good, good, good. And then when he sees man by himself, he looks at that thing and goes, Well, that's not good. I mean, and by the way, if you look at a man left by himself, it is not good. Right, we don't know how to separate lights from darks. We, don't, we cannot handle it on our own. And so God looks upon this as like, this is not good. We're going to have to do something about this situation. Verse 18, he continues, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called them, each living creature, that was its name. And so Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And so as Adam is created and God gives him this incredible intellect, as a little sidebar, you ever amaze yourself at how intelligent Adam was? And it caused me to, to ask this question too. Um, so often we, we are infiltrated in science and in our are learning that the earth is millions and then billions and billions of years old. Why? Because we look around and everything looks old. But isn't this amazing? Uh, how old was Adam in this scene? One day old. And yet, was Adam an infant? No. He, he was a fully grown, fully intelligent man, probably looking like to our eyes he was in his 30s. And yet God gave him age-dating factors in this spot. And so why could he not do that to all 
of creation? The answer is, he very much can and he very much did. And so Adam is here, intelligent enough that as every animal has marched past him, he's able to say, good morning, Mr. Cow, Mrs. Cow, good to see you, Mr. Giraffe, Mrs. Giraffe, nice to meet you. But as he goes through all this, what he finds is there's no comparable helper for him. There's no one to come alongside him. There's no Mrs. Adam that is like him. And so what does God do? Well, I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, Adam, go figure this out for yourself. Go find the first hairy beast you come across and hook up with that thing. He doesn't say that. He tells Adam to rest. I want you to rest. And so yet again, just as the chapter started, the theme here as we go through it is rest and trust that God is going to take care of these things. And so we continue. Verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman, and he brought her to the man. And so Adam is put into a deep sleep by God. This is the first ever surgery we see recorded in human history. And God removes what we translate in our English as a rib, which has caused people for hundreds of years to say, well, apparently a woman must have an extra rib more than a man. And so we've looked at these things so foolishly. Uh, First of all, if a person is missing an arm and they have a child, would you expect the child to also be missing an arm, right? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So I don't know why we layer that into a biblical narrative. But the other piece is the word that's translated as rib for us is actually the word uh, tasala in Hebrew, which means uh, side or curved part. And so this is where uh, Eve was taken out of. Now, what we find here, and this is what I wanted to note for you, is that the first Adam is put into a death-like sleep, and out of his side he is brought forth a bride. But when you advance thousands of years in human history, uh, who Paul refers to as the last Adam, Jesus, the Christ, the Mashiach, as he is in a death-like state, in fact, as he is breathing his last breath there upon the cross, what happens in John 19, verse 34, is the Roman soldier comes up to him, takes a spear through his side, and out from that pours forth water and blood, birthing fluids. And from that point forward, from his side comes a bride. We are brought forth by the sacrifice of the blood and the water that poured forth from Jesus the Christ. You and I are now able to come alongside him, to actually co-labor with him as the bride of Christ. And so this beautiful picture from the very beginnings of Scripture that we see layered in. Now, verse 23, And Adam said, Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And so as Eve is brought there to Adam, he says the only thing he can say, he looks at her and says, Whoa, man! Right? So, there's only one thing I can think. Whoa, man! Now, here we have Eve presented to him, though, not as a servant, but as a counterpart. Not taken from Adam's head or from his foot, lest he, uh, lest she think she was higher than him or him be able to stomp upon her, but taken from his side as a co-laborer to come alongside. And so, 
here's woman presented to Adam in the same fashion as he was, in the same kind as he was, body and soul and spirit. And so we have Eve presented to him as the only other spiritual being like Adam, three in one. And yet so often, as we think about a future maid or we think about someone we could be joined to for all of eternity, how often do we look for three out of three? I think more often than not, we look at it like the old meatloaf, meatloaf song, right? Don't be sad, it's two out of three ain't bad, right? We, we look at a relationship and go, well, well two out of three, eh, close enough, that's not so bad. And so we go into these relationships that are flesh joined together, that are body joined together, soul joined together, spirit, and we go, you know what, the spiritual, he'll get it eventually, She'll get it eventually. If we just enter into this relationship, we'll pray him into it. And so what happens is a whole lifetime of often uh, pain, difficulty. Marriages become very difficult when we're not matched up the way God intended three out of three. Now, all this leads me to a spot to go ahead and talk about uncomfortable things. I love to avoid uncomfortable things, uh, but that's not what we do here. So uh, we're going to just delve into it and ask hard questions. Uh, first of all, what do we do in a difficult marriage? What if I've already entered into this thing and we didn't match up? And yet here I am in this spot where, where spiritually we are not on the same page. Where am I supposed to land as a husband, as a wife? What is my responsibility in this? And so for that, and for each of these, we'll turn to Scripture for an answer. Not Dr. Phil. Sorry, Dr. Phil. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll go with Dr. Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verse 16. I'll begin at the end here of verse 15. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And so the recommendation is if you're already in one of these relationships and you haven't lined up uh, spiritually, it's continue to be a person of peace and also pray for them. Pray that God would change their heart. Pray that God would open his eyes, her eyes, and spend way more time on your knees praying for them than you do in their face trying to convince them. Because as we're on our knees praying for our spouse, what Paul says is, who knows? God might actually be able to get through to them. The Lord wants to have a relationship with them. And so the encouragement there is to continue to pray for your spouse. Now the second hard question to ask is this. Um, what if I'm already divorced? I love Jesus, and yet what does God have for me? What about me? And what I would tell you is, uh, by and large, the church in America for the last 50 years, when it comes to divorced people, uh, we have absolutely stunk. We have stunk at coming alongside people who have been through the pain of flesh being torn away from flesh. We've not come alongside. We've not supported them. And by and large, they have felt like a pariah, like a leper, been cast off to the side because you didn't make it work. Never mind, my relationship's a disaster, but you didn't cut it. And so what I would share with that group is this. Um, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the word in the Greek for all is actually the word uh, all. <laughs> that means all of us. None of us has actually got it figured out. None of us has actually got it together. 
And so if all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, here's what Paul continues to say in verse 24. Is being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The answer is being justified by His grace and being in Christ Jesus. He can make us whole again. It's by His blood that we are sanctified, that we are cleansed, that we get to come into relationship with Him. And as the Lord navigates you through that difficulty, which is, again, like flesh being torn away, it always leaves scars, it always leaves pain, it leaves people hurt. Here's the wonderful news. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, what we read there is that you now have this unique opportunity as God comforts you through that season to come alongside and be a comfort to others. That there are people you can actually come alongside. You have a unique perspective to provide to them the same comfort that God has provided to you previously. It's actually a beautiful gift. It's a beautiful opportunity to come alongside and support those folks who, by the way, 50% of America have gone through divorce. Which means if we don't address it, there's half the people that, that are not having anyone come alongside that show up at churches every single Sunday. And so what I would say is we don't want to alienate folks we want to come alongside. Uh, we want to provide the same comfort that we've been comforted with. And so uh, this is what I would mention to that group. Lastly, and not least, is what about those that have never been married before? Those where God has never provided the, the three out of three, that spouse that they could be linked up to. What about that grouping? For those, again, I would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is what Paul would say. Here in verse 32. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of this world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. Thank you, Paul. That's helpful. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. And she who is Married cares about the things of this world, how she may please her husband. In verse 35, And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. That as hard as it may be, and as painful as it may be at times, what Paul says is this is actually a gift from God. That you have this unique opportunity to be able to serve Him freely. That for others who are in a, a marriage relationship, there's always going to be a pull towards a spouse, towards a husband, towards a wife. And for those that have been given this gift, if you can see it as that, it is an opportunity to actually be able to serve Him freely and wholly, to be married and wed to King Jesus. Beautiful relationship. Now, on to verse 24, now that we're all good and uncomfortable. Verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And so this chapter 2 ends with a, a theme that is uh, oneness, of being joined together. In fact, uh, in the old King James, we would read, uh, a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And so this concept of leaving and cleaving. 
But some of you may wonder, oh, what does this look like for me practically? What, is this, what does this look like for me in this spot practically, spiritually? What's my big takeaway? And so for that, what I would suggest is this. Um, what God is calling us to do is to leave. To leave absolutely everything. To leave my hopes, my dreams, my desires, leave them all behind. And cleave instead to Him. This is the the call we have on our lives. Now immediately the question is going to be, what about my career? What about my finances? My house? My kids? What about all these things that I'm worried about? But to be joined to Christ means you actually leave all those things behind and put Him first. And then begin to trust Him to take care of all the rest. In fact, Matthew 6.33 says this, that seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all the other things will be added. We spend so much of our time worried about all the other things that we completely forsake seeking Him and His kingdom first and foremost. My promise to you is if you do that, if you seek Him and His kingdom first, He will take care of all the other things. That If, if you wonder about how, how am I supposed to then love, what about these people that I love? And I would tell you this, that if you don't have a proper relationship with Christ Jesus, you cannot actually love another human adequately. It will always have an element of self tied to it. But if you love Him wholly and completely, your love relationships go to a whole new level. Self begins to be pressed out of the situation, and it begins to be more about how can I love others. I now love Jesus. He is now calling me to love others. Others, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, and oop, you fall third, you. <laughs> That's what joy actually looks like in a Christian relationship. And it begins with loving Him wholly and completely. The next question is though, what about my identity? Who am I? If I'm not this title, if I'm not husband, father, dad, uh, president, vice president, uh, director, employee, teacher, whatever this thing is that I want to be, what if I'm not this, what is my identity? Who am I? That's the wrong question. It's not about who am I. It's really about whose I am. Whose am I? I am a son of a king above everything else in my life. Everything else comes secondary to that, or third, or fourth, or doesn't even make the cut. The reality is, when I realize, when I realize whose I am, I begin to have confidence that He will take care of me. I begin to realize that I can cling to Him. I can cleave to Him knowing that He's going to provide for all my needs. Now, the alternative is you can cleave to the world. You can cleave to the world and everything it has to offer. And what I will promise you is, you will always be left wanting. It will never, ever be enough. There's never enough money. There's never enough houses, cars, boats, sex, you name it. There is never enough. It's never good enough. In fact, next week we're going we're gonna to gather and watch the Super Bowl. And the reality is, for one of those teams that worked all season long, it's going to not be enough. They're going to fall and they're going to be called losers and feel like that. And we'll try to prop them up and make them feel better about themselves. But it's not going to be enough. And the truth is, even for the winners, you know what happens just a couple days later? They're zero and zero. They've got to go back and do it all over again. 
There's 17 more games plus the playoffs. They start all over again at the bottom, and this is what happens every single time because the world never gives us enough. And so the challenge in this is if we decide to leave that behind and instead cleave to him, is trusting him to be our enough. And if you trust him to be your enough, eventually what will happen is all the shame and all the regret of your past fades away. All the nakedness you're afraid of people seeing in you, if they really knew me, they'd reject me, all those things begin to fade away. The shame begins to dissipate. As we cleave to him and that fades away, what you realize is there's truth in Scripture. Like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If you don't have this one memorized or underlined in your Bible, first of all, it's okay to underline and highlight in your Bible. Know that. And this is one that's highlighter worthy. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you are in Christ Jesus, all the old stuff, all the things that used to define you that the world wanted to label you with and by, the things that caused you so much pain and so much shame, that is no longer you. And so the beautiful part is when you share your testimony, I've got the opportunity this last month to share my testimony two different times. Once here at the first of the year and again at Parkland Chapel last week. And as I share it, I got to tell you, there's parts of me in my flesh that kind of recoil. Like I don't, I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk about that. And yet, the truth is, I'm talking about a dead guy. <laughs> I'm talking about someone who's dead. He is not here anymore. And so when I begin to put that into proper perspective, realizing that the things of my life that cause me shame and regret and pain, that's somebody who died. I'm now a new creation in Christ Jesus. I'm no longer ashamed. I'm talking about somebody who's in the ground. And this is the freedom that exists by being one with Christ. Being one with Him where all things can be naked and open to Him. No longer do I have to live a life of shame. But I can stand before the King because of the blood of Jesus. And so Father, we thank You and we praise You for New Testament truths that exist right at the very beginning of Scripture. Lord, thank You that we have this unique opportunity, this unbelievable opportunity to leave behind all the things that are actually temporary anyway. And instead, to cling to You, to cleave to You, to take on a new name, a new identity. Lord, thank You for the freedom that exists in that. Thank you for the freedom that exists when we are finally vulnerable enough to say, that used to be me, that is no longer me. That thing no longer defines who I am. And never will it define me ever again. Father, thank you for that. And Lord, as we get ready to prepare our hearts for communion, as we get ready to, to observe your great work on the cross, Holy Spirit, would you please illuminate those things in us that you would have us to leave behind and give us that gentle reminder to cling to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.